You're listening to the Big Speak Podcast, a program populated by the voices of thought leaders, successful CEOs, and renowned entrepreneurs. We'll hear their exclusive tips, behind the scenes insights, and off the record stories. Pieces of knowledge only available from Big Speak's unique slate of keynote speakers and business leaders. During these episodes, we'll meet just a few of the best speakers in the business, learn their unique skill sets that enabled them to inspire audiences on the biggest stages in the world. Inspiration begins now. Well, welcome back to the show. I would like to introduce you to Peter Zion. He is a top keynote speaker. He does about 100 keynotes a year in geopolitical strategy and specializes in global energy, demographics, and security. Before founding his own firm, Zion on Geopolitics, Peter worked for the U.S. State Department and private think tanks. He's also the author of two influential geopolitical strategy books that look at the United States' relationship with other superpowers, the absent superpower and the accidental superpower. Peter, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I am, uh, you know, doing the research and, and people, who, the person who's listening can go jump into the show notes and look at all the information about you. I'm curious about when you discovered you were curious about everything. <laughs> uh, it happened back at Stratfor. That was my previous employer. I was the only person they had ever really hired who had done time in more than one region or more than one topic. And my background was in NATO security studies and Asian economic development. So I was always drawing connections among things that were kind of strange to be connected at all. And they kind of cycled me through the various regions. So I did time with Europe and the Middle East. And the point that I knew that things were going to be a little different is uh, it was my first week on the job. And I had a question about an energy question in Saudi Arabia. So I went to the Middle East team. They said, you know, here's my question, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You're, you're talking to the wrong people. Uh, the oil, oil markets don't have anything to do with the Middle East. You need to go talk to the energy team. So I went uh -huh. there and, you know, asked my question. They go, oh, no, 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 no. You, you got it all wrong. Uh, <laughs> the Middle East has nothing to do with oil markets. And it's like, okay, there's probably a niche here for me. And right. so I became kind of the go-to guy for anything that crossed boundaries. And over time, I became the analyst who was, as a rule, most willing to accept that I might not know the most in the room about whatever the topic happened to be. And that made me very unpopular with the analysts, but it made me very popular with the clients because I never felt like I had to prove myself. Uh, I was willing to admit that they might know something that I don't, but I didn't feel like I needed to convince them that uh, I was the person who knew the most about the Umayyad Caliphate in the Middle East. Uh, and after doing that for several years, I kind of became the unofficial voice of the company. I was looking at the website where you, you have this one page of, it feels like 20, at least 20 different regions that you can just click on any one of those regions and see how much depth there is in your knowledge on, on these. Um, feels like niche, but they're not niche geopolitical con areas of concern. Fair? Yeah, it's called Know Your World. And each yeah. image there is yeah. a business card that I've got here with me. And all of them have a story to tell. It all fits together in some way. And uh, that's really at the core of what I do, drawing the connections between topics and regions that most people would not see the connections. Uh, I live in the context. So I'm thinking about this idea of, of a geopolitical expert coming and talking to my company. 
and it feels like like you're the guy who's going to help. I'm thinking it's Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 500 companies, geo, you know, uh, companies that have a broad footprint. And I'm curious about the company that's maybe just in the U.S. How do you make the case that what you have to teach them is relevant? Everything's connected to a certain degree, but not necessarily the way that people are thinking. So most of my speaking gigs, I'd say probably about half the total, go to some sort of associations, whether it's a group of CFAs or everyone who's in the specific subsector of the agricultural industry. Uh, the key is not necessarily that they've got a presence or a client set or a market set or a product set that crosses boundaries. The point is that there is something, probably a lot of things, about their sector and their firm that are connected in ways they don't necessarily understand. So the primary message I attempt to communicate with most of my presentations is that the rules of the game, of the international order themselves, are in the process of being upended and ripped apart and probably not replaced with anything. So this pretense of stability and growth that we've all become used to in the last 70 years, that itself is shifting. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's got positive or negative connotations or outcomes for any particular group. But when you change the fundamental structure of how the world works, every piece is going to move somewhat. And even if you're an American firm dealing with an exclusively American supply chain, with an exclusively American product set and American consumption base, there's still going to be shifts in the system that you need to know about. So for example, Let's say the European system fell about tomorrow. I don't think it'll happen tomorrow. I mean, maybe next week, but not tomorrow. <laughs> the capital flight that's going to come to the United States is going to be atrocious. The skilled labor flight that's going to come to the United States is going to be monumental, the biggest in 150 years, and that's going to change the way that you operate. So it's about finding where the dynamic bits in every particular sector and subsector happen to be and then playing them across this future that I've kind of sketched together as the world, to be perfectly blunt, ends. What does that mean? Where does that take you? What are your opportunities? What are your challenges? Uh, there were so many different quotes that I picked up in, in watching a few of the videos. One was this, as you just said, the new world is defined by disorder. That's the t-shirt I'm wearing right now, <laughs> defined by disorder. What, is, what does a leader need to have as a skill set or start to develop as a skill set to be facile in this new environment? You need to have a very strong understanding of the strengths and the weaknesses with your own, your own organization, whether that's on the labor side of things because we're going through the world's largest ever demographic inversion or on the supply chain side because most people at most are aware of their supply chains one step beyond their own company and after that it just kind of disappears into the ether. Uh, we're moving into a world where shorter sharper, more condensed, more local supply chains are going to have a huge advantage over those that are longer and ganglier. Now, we've been moving away from this for 70 years. Uh, with a more stable world, larger global economy, more growth around the world, all of those things argue for breaking up supply chain steps into smaller and smaller pieces so you can eke out every little last bit of efficiency from larger economies of scale. But without global order, you can't get economies of scale, so all of a sudden you have to collapse back into something more stable. As a rule, American firms are better at that than most. And as a rule, a lot of the manufacturing supply chains that we have integrated with are coming back to North America anyway. But within that simple statement is a wide, wide array of variation and exception. 70 years ago, my rough math is World War II. Yeah. 
and what was it about that that precipitated this change that is are are we at the tail end of that change or is it an, a log curve we're we're kind of at the end of a vacation uh, before world war 2 the world was imperial imperial excuse me and if you wanted something you basically went and shot the person who had it and you built these parallel militarized imperial systems that competed with one each, each other and war was often often yeah, blah, 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 blah. We created these imperial militarized systems that competed with one another, and oftentimes war was part of the competition. So you wouldn't trade with an opposing empire because the next time there was a conflict, even if you were not involved in said conflict, you could lose access to whatever it was you thought you needed. So you kept it all in-house. And this was the norm, and this led to wars, and this led to World War II. And that's how it been, had been for most of recorded history. At the end of World War II, nobody had a navy except for the United States. And so the United States put together a new system because we knew there was no possible way we could win the Cold War without hundreds of millions of people as allies. So we used our military system to create this concept that we now think of as world trade and a globalized network. And that's how we paid people to be on our side in things like NATO. So we basically bought up, bribed up an alliance network. And that's the world we know. That's how it's been since 1946, and that's given us a larger, more dynamic, more technologically advanced, better educated, safer, healthier world for 70 years. But what everybody who thinks about the global system and the rise of secondary powers, whether it's Russia or China or whatever, what they always forget is this was all an American ploy to win a war that ended 30 years ago. And since then, we've been moving away from this system bit by bit by bit. And Donald Trump just happens to be the guy in the big chair at the time that the whole thing finally collapses. It would have happened under Hillary Clinton. It just might have been a little bit better organized. Well, if you're one of the countries that completely overhauled your economic and political system to take advantage of free trade and global security, you need to find a fundamentally different way to act, operate. The United States never did overhaul its system because for us, that was the bribe. So we've had this 70-year vacation from the imperial world, and we're going back into it now in a world that doesn't have empires. So even the relative stability that existed in the world before 1939, that's gone. And it's going to take a generation for the pieces to shatter and then reform into something that will resemble regional power blocks. And there are very, very few countries on the planet that can do well in that sort of environment. Who, who is that? Uh, the short list is Turkey, Japan, Argentina, and France. Uh, they're either not going to be heavily involved in the fights over the scraps because of geography or economic structure, or they're far enough away from the zones they're going to see the real fighting, or they just happen to have this magic mix of insulation and local market and geography and resources that allow them to do well despite all the chaos in the international system. So when looks, I'm, I'm thinking of the impact of technology on all of this mm -hmm. and accelerating those things. And we look at the internet as a, a thing that has helped. Where does the internet fit into all of this? Well, people look at things like social media today and they're like, oh hell, look what it's doing to our political system. And I don't mean to, to dissuade you from having that kind of negative view on it. It is, it's not great. Uh, but we've done this before. Uh, the last time a revolution in information technology changed the way we do politics was the 1890s. We had same-day newspapers and the telegraph. 
And it took us 10, 15, 20 years to figure out how to incorporate those two technologies into how we operated. And so in the meantime, things like morals and ethics and accuracy went out the window. You remember yellow journalism? That's then. And we ended up in a war with Spain, in part, because of the social media of the era. Now, I'm not saying that, that we're going to go to war because of misinformation. I also wouldn't rule it out. But you play that into today's environment when the rules of the game, when the geopolitical structure of the world, when demographic conversion and energy markets, when it's all getting turned inside out anyway, and then you add in information immediacy without information accuracy, and the capacity for people to make wrong decisions for inaccurate reasons uh, explodes. Uh, the Russians have done a decent job at weaponizing that. Uh, I, I look forward to the day in the not-too-distant future when they're on the other end of this. Uh, the Russian system is economically and demographically in a state of slow-motion collapse. And as soon as other countries who are no longer under the American shield realize they're going to have to deal with Russia on their own, and they start to, the Russians are wildly, wildly, hideously, hilariously unprepared for that sort of conflict. And it's going to come at them from all points of the compass. To be a fly on the wall uh, when the Putin government realizes that the only thing that's keeping the Russian system in place is American commitment to a failing order, that will be a good day. Let's let's shift geographies over to China. Sure. Um, I listened to the New York Times talk about the um, the surveillance state. Sure. And I'm sure. I mean, whatever let's, you, just, let's just start whatever there. you've heard, it's worse. <laughs> It, it scared me quite a bit. Yeah, it should. It was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just, I'm curious, the, the question I have is, so just let's assume, listener, that they are, they know everything about you, where you're going, just 100, you're 100% transparent. You are clear. They know everything about you. And they figured out how to do this with billions of people. And then invited the states that they're friendly with, the countries they're friendly with, to see how they've done that so that they can then, I'm guessing, sell that technology back into those states and become part of an even larger web. Tell me if I'm wrong in where I'm going with this. You're smiling, so I'm thinking I'm, I'm probably close to the right track. Um, other than, let's just say, world domination, uh, <laughs> what's, what's in it for the Chinese to have such control over their own populace and then by extension the others? Do you have TSA pre-check? I do. Yeah, why? Because I don't want to wait in line. Okay. So you fingerprinted yourself. You've done a background search, and you've allowed the government into your private life and your social media files in order to prove that you're a safer citizen. Yes. Yeah. Willingly. Willingly. <laughs> Enthusiastically, I might even say. Correct. Uh, now, this, I, no, I paid to do it. You paid to do it, yeah. <laughs> now, this is taking it to a little bit of the absurd extreme, but that's kind of what the Chinese are thinking of. The idea that in order to get these benefits people are willing to give up these rights. Now, in China, they didn't have those rights in the first place, so it's easier to surrender them. Uh, but all the uh, kind of gut-level concerns that this is bad for civil liberties and it's bad for being good for authoritarian governments, you're totally spot on there. Uh, they're basically using it as a massive social engineering tool to breed out certain sorts of activities. Now, this is not new in Chinese history. The only difference this time is that it's digitized. And when you've got a country where you can literally have 100 million civil servants sorting through information, 
honestly, this is a very low manpower way of doing this. So it's not like this is a cultural shock to the Chinese. Uh, but for using that technology beyond China, uh, that would be new. Now, whether it's Belt or Road or them selling it to authoritarian regimes, that will certainly give the Chinese governments a few more tools here and there. But the type of data scraping that they would need to do to do that for the United States, for example, that we just don't have that sort of technological connections. Uh, almost all, and if we did get to the point where the Chinese thought that they could try that, and I don't think that's their goal, uh, all the information that goes between the United States and mainland China goes through a series of subsea cables. You can cut those in an hour if you wanted to. So this, kind of like the global order, only goes as far as the United States wants to let it. So it's a real threat. It's a concern. It changes the sort of country that China is. But I don't see it as a threat to the American way of life. Yet. Yet, yeah. Now, the technology might evolve into something that's a little bit more autonomous. It requires less connection across the Pacific. But one of the reasons why China is doing relatively well in things like AI development is they've got more data than anybody else. Data requires physical connections. And they don't have that to the United States. So on, on AI, and I'm thinking on how um, R&D, an R&D strategy for a nation keeps that nation uh, superior competitive ahead. I'd that argue fair? that, well... If you're talking about very specific applications like warfare, yes. And the Germans have certainly proved that you can do that. But having a national strategy for technological development to achieve specific ends is a very inefficient and wasteful way to do it. Uh, one of the reasons why the United States has tended to be a technological leader for the last century is we don't have that sort of policy. And it means that we will always be in second place on this, that, or the other thing, but we'll probably always be in second place on everything. We focus on primary, secondary, and tertiary education. Now, you can argue that we're not the best in the world at it, but in terms of a broad-based, education-based skill set that allows people to cross disciplines all the time per their interests, and then the state more or less getting out of the way when it comes to prioritizing resources, that's what you want if you want to generate a huge volume of technology indigenously. Now, you might not get the specific widget that you're after, and so that's one of the reasons why if you're going to do a technological policy, an industrial policy, it usually focuses on the military because you have an end goal very much in mind. But for across-the-board tech, uh, industrial policy guarantees that you'll never be at the top because you're going to have to anything that you don't rush resources to, you're going to be behind in. And that's one of the reasons that the Soviets were great at radar and certain weapon systems but sucked at everything else. Uh, as a former Russian colleague of mine said, said, you know, of course you've got more computers because we only used our computers in our space station and you made video games. Uh, mm. It's like video games generated so much capital and made so many people interested in so many types of computers that it spawned its own information revolution. Uh, the Soviets had 12 people who knew how to, knew how to program Mir. So... In specifically with AI, for instance, mm -hmm. I think the Chinese are light years ahead of us. I just have that sense. I, I play in that world, mm -hmm. but it feels like the, the innovation is happening there. They are definitely ahead. I would not say light years. They're certainly ahead, though. Okay. And, and the amount of money, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of four TED Talks specifically, <laughs> uh, where Kaifu Lee just kind of scared me a bit. Mm -hmm. And then I look at how much money is being um, invested at the, in the private markets mm -hmm. for AI development, that it's just, 
I'm a little nervous about that. Well, let me give you two things that should make you be, hopefully make you feel a little bit better, okay. or at least make you worry about something a little different. Okay. Uh, first on AI. Uh, AI, in the way that most people think of it today, is not what AI really is. Uh, it has nothing to do with autonomous decision-making or thinking or uh, you know something that runs with Schmeinet that's trying to wipe out humanity. Uh, it is simply taking rote, brute-forced calculations and running them however many billions of times you need to to get an ideal result. Now, that's a significant technological leap, and it has implications for finance and healthcare and agriculture and everything else. But it is not thinking. Correct. And I don't know anyone in the tech field who thinks that we're going to get past that within the next 30 years. Do you think it's 30? At least 30. Uh, if you want to talk about even like thinking on the level of a two-year-old, that's probably four decades or more out. So let's just keep that in mind. Um, oh, why they're doing it. Uh, the Chinese, who are in real decision-making power, are not set on global domination because they know their own history. They know that after 5,000 years of Chinese history, China has only been physically unified for three centuries. Half of that was under the Mongol occupation, and the other half, most of that is under the global order. Because we took the European colonists and sent them home, we sent the Japanese packing, and for the first time in their history, the Chinese were left to be Chinese. They realize that the success of modern China is dependent upon American engagement in the world to allow them to, among other things, import capital and technology and export finished goods and import energy and all the rest. They know that they cannot replace the United States in that role. Yes, the American Navy and the Chinese Navy are about the same size in terms of number of ships. We have 11 supercarriers. They have one small carrier that used to be a casino. <laughs> Uh, they only have 30 ships that can sail more than 1,000 miles from home. And by sail, I mean not get shot at. Uh, they probably only have 10 ships that can operate 1,000 miles from home under wartime scenarios, or is in comparison our entire Navy can. So they know there's no comparison there, and the people who talk are not the people making the decisions. So you've got to think of why would a country with 1.2 billion people be obsessed with an AI-derived technological suite that is basically based on efficiency. It's not because they think they can overtake us, it's because of a domestic problem. You remember the one-child policy? Yep. Well, 30 years after the one-child policy, the Chinese are running out of 30-year-olds. They are not nearly as good at math as they would have us all believe, which means that if they can't become more efficient and fast, their entire economic structure collapses because they are running out of workers and they are running out of consumers. And if there's even a wisp of a hint that the Americans are losing interest in a partnership with China, then it really is over. This is a defensive effort. This has nothing to do with trying to take over the world. Why do you think we haven't heard that message at a larger scale well, part than of, we part are right now? Part of it's biology. I mean, you know, if, if you're on the plains of Africa and you think that there might be a tiger in the, the bush, you, you kind of freak out a bit and you look really closely. You don't think, oh, it's probably just the wind and I'll just ignore it. No, because if you ignore it, the one time you're wrong, you're dead. So we're just wired as a species to perceive threats as more interesting than peace. Uh, so there's that piece. Uh, second, Americans are moody. <laughs> uh, every decade... Since 1850, you could take look at the poll data. Every decade but one since 1850, Americans have been convinced that it's the final decade of the United States. 
that, that one exception was the 1990s, because right after the Soviet Union collapsed, we were kind of like, oh, maybe we're okay. We're good. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's a kind of a manic, depressive uh, nature to our... Every, every country has a series of formative experiences that kind of shape how they are as a people. Ours was the pioneer era. And for 150 years, everything got better every year. We became convinced that uh, we were ordained to be successful. And so when the world would reach out and interface with us on the, the world's terms, we kind of lost our mind. And so Sputnik led to a industrial overhaul because we were convinced that we were, we were done unless we changed everything, we were gonna die. Uh, the 19, late 1970s, 1980s, oil shocks did the same thing for the industry and the financial space. 9-11 did the same thing for oil policy. Uh, and we always come back a decade later not just recovered from whatever the issue was, but basically writing the global future. But we still get scared because we're just losing is not in our DNA. We're not, we don't have an experience with that that goes back to the beginning. Every other culture is much more even keeled than we are because they're used to the ebb and flow of international relations. They realize that you don't win every fight. That comes as a shock to us. And that means we're always paranoid that it's almost over and we're always looking for what it is that might make us end so what we're doing with china now we did with japan in the 1980s we did with the soviet union in the 1970s we did with germany in the 1930s we freaking did it with spain for a while i mean how could you be intimidated by spain uh, this isn't new and china won't be the last one so you're making me feel better Good. thank you um, so everybody's kind of got their hair on fire right now with our with our current political. I don't know when someone's going to be listening to this show. So sure, sure, sure. Trump may or may not still be president. Uh, uh, well, if it's going to, he's not going to be impeached. If that's what you're thinking. Nope, yeah. nope, not okay. going there. I. All right. But <laughs> but people feel like it's all to your point. It's all falling apart. It's sure. irreparable damage. The, look at all of these things. We've blown up the democratic state and all of that. But. What I'm kind of hearing from you is because you have studied history and seen mm -hmm. the cyclical nature of all this, you know, th this too will pass. Sure. Uh, what's going on in the United States in 2019, or 2017, 2018, 2019, is that both parties have entered a stage of factional breakdown and rearrangement. Uh, in the United States, we've got a first past the post system, which means that you don't have to get the majority of votes to get the seat. You just have to get one more vote than whoever comes in second. And that strongly encourages coalitions. So, for example, the Democratic coalition is a coalition of African-Americans and gays and unions and greens and socialists and, and single women, uh, all of who have their own issues that they're really passionate about, and they're just kind of packed into the same party. Republicans do the same thing with fiscal conservatives and business voters, national security guys, uh, pro-lifers, evangelicals, same basic concept. Uh, it's a stable system. It holds for decades. It's resistant to change because even if one specific faction doesn't like whoever the candidate has, they probably like a faction for the next district over and it takes a lot of upset for those factions to get so upset that they jump fence but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen often. Now, the last time the United States went through one of these factional rearrangements, it was the 1930s and 1940s. So we went through the Great Depression, we went through World War II. And it took about 12 years for the parties to shuffle to the form that we currently recognize. Before that shuffle, the 1920s and before, the Democrats were the party of big business and anti-regulation and low taxes. 
and the Republicans were the party of social benefits and African Americans. So we're probably not going to recognize the new alliances when they come out on the back end. Uh, but it's a 10-year process, and this is year three. Mm. Now, it's too soon to declare success or to even have a more than a very, very flimsy prediction as how it's going to go. But right now, Trump's version of republicanism is out ahead. Uh, he started with the evangelicals and the pro-lifers uh, and the populists. And he has very successfully reined in the unions. I would say probably 95% of rank and fire union membership now that consider them on the Trump side of things. The union leadership is lagging on that. It usually does. Uh, three quarters of American Hispanics go with Trump. People forget that uh, Hispanic Americans are by far the most anti-immigration of any faction in American politics. They believe in family reunification, but only for their families. Everyone else can go to hell. Uh, and so all this wall talk, while the business community is horrified, the Hispanics are like, yeah, yeah, totally. Let's do that. Uh, and as you might have guessed from that, the business community is no longer part of the Republican coalition. Trump actually sees them as greater ideological foes than most Democrats. So the fiscal conservatives, the national security conservatives, the business conservatives are no longer Republicans. They've been excised from Congress and from the administration. But on the other side, the unions have already jumped ship, and the Hispanics have gone from swing voters to edging very heavily towards Trump. Uh, so the Trump coalition, Trumplican is the term that I kind of use, uh, it's the most stable coalition in the game right now, and it's surprisingly large. That doesn't mean that it will survive. That doesn't mean that it will be the new party. That doesn't mean it will survive Trump. But he certainly has a hell of a head start right now. I'm curious if you think it's him or it's the people he surrounded himself with. Uh, there has been so much turnover among the people who have surrounded with him that it's totally him. Switch gears. Sure. Um, I, I, and I think I'm answering my own question, but when I started this conversation, I was thinking about your uh, predictive capability just as a human. So you, you predicted Brexit was going to happen. You predicted lots of things that have happened, right? You're known for that. So I'm curious if if there's, uh, I don't want to say crystal ball because I don't want to demean the thing. Or is no, it crystal ball would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or is it that you're such a keen student of history that you can look at the cyclical nature of things and you just go, yeah, that's about, this should be happening about now? I think that my big advantage is that I'm always asking the question, why? It's like, why is this the way it is? Why is this structure here? Why does this political party do this? Why does this country seem to act that way, whether they've got a Nazi or socialist in charge? Uh, there are a lot of commonalities throughout history and geography and demographic strategy and, and technology uh, that build patterns. And so I'm always looking for places where those foundational issues are cracking or where they're holding uh, so in the case of Brexit, there's a lot wrong with the European Union right now. I mean, you, uh, the, um, the humanitarian in me is endlessly impressed with what the Europeans have achieved with the EU. Uh, you know, this is, this is the country that has seen the most blood and horror throughout human history. And for the last 70 years, they have made a demonstrated top-down effort on the left, the right, and the center to start a fundamentally new chapter in their history. And I am just in awe of what they have achieved in such a short period of time. And then the economist in me looks at the year and thinks, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And so 
I have to look at not so much the goal, but the foundation. And without the global order, the EU could never exist. Because what is Germany if it can't get energy? It either dies as a country or goes and takes energy. And that's more accurately representative of European history than the last 70 years. So I'm always looking for the things that crack and the things that hold. On the things that crack, uh, there aren't a lot of technologies that can change the game of geopolitics. But if you're changing the rules of the game anyway, all of a sudden there's a lot more in motion. So the shale revolution, which would have been transformative anyway, uh, all of a sudden is looking to make the United States not just the world's largest producer of crude, but the world's largest exporter of crude and the world's largest exporter of refined product, which means that the United States no longer seeks international stability in order to keep the energy flowing because it doesn't need it. In fact, if you're an exporter of not just the crude but the finished product and you're in a different hemisphere from all the things that can go wrong, global disruption is really good for business. And so we've become used to this last 70 years of the United States being the guarantor of the global order. But whether it's agriculture or energy or manufacturing supply chains, all of a sudden the United States is in a position where breaking the system makes a lot of economic sense. Now, you could certainly say there's some ethical concerns there, and there are, but it's very similar to what every other country in the world has done for the last thousand years. Uh, even doing it inexpertly would benefit American businesses and the American population hugely. Uh, we're not there as a country to be actively considering that as official policy, but we're not far off. U.S. deployments overseas right now are at their lowest level since the 1920s. Uh, and the United States retains the most eminently deployable military in the world. It doesn't take a lot of tweaking uh, to turn that into a mercantile policy. Uh, we're not there yet, but I bet we'll be there by the time the next president rolls around. So it's it. You've, you're well-traveled, but most Americans are not well-traveled. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're very insular, and, and we just think about our four walls, so to speak. Sure. And yet Europeans, that's very, very different. When we, we think about, um, if we're not watching the news all the time, we think, you know, everything's okay. But I know there are some hot spots. Where should we, like if we want to set up our news feed to be paying attention to things, <laughs> to be more global citizen, what, what should we be paying attention to? Uh, the most important thing that's going on uh, right now in mid-2019 are the trade talks with the Chinese. Uh, China is, in terms of volume, the biggest trading country in the world, and it is now the largest trading partner of most of the East Asian rim. So however that shakes out is important in and of itself. But the extreme vulnerability that the Chinese have to the United States right now is shocking. Uh, everything that is allowed the Chinese system to exist and thrive since 1979 is because of American involvement. And what the Chinese have discovered in the trade talks is that the negotiator on the other side of the table understands that. Robert Lighthizer is the guy leading the talks. He's the U.S. trade representative. And he has been America's most knowledgeable trade player since Reagan. Uh, he's the guy who wrote the WTO charter, for example. And he was the guy who broke the Japanese economy in the late 1980s. Uh, he has been giddy at the opportunity to do the same thing to the Chinese for quite some time. And I, I know we don't want to date this too much, but what's going on like right now is that the, the Chinese are realizing that everything he said was serious and that he really does expect to install American bureaucrats within the Chinese state to force compliance. And if they won't, 
then the answer is you just can't access the American market. And that's a lot more damning than it sounds because all trade outside of China uses the U.S. dollar as an intermediary. So, I mean, you're really talking about shutting China off from everything. Uh, and these are, these are real threats. And the Chinese have always assumed that to be able to bully through this, flatter Trump a little bit, and be done. And it's proving to be hideously naive of them. So that's the big one. <laughs> uh, I, I'm because I'm a forecaster. I'm always more interested in what happens the next day. Uh, one way or another, China is going to lose access to the global trading system, whether it's because of something domestic or international. There are a lot of ways that this could go down. But I'm always interested in what happens the next day. So if the Chinese crack and stumble, who benefits? And it's hard to see any country doing better than Japan. They've got a long-reach navy. They've offloaded a lot of their industrial plant to the wider world, especially the United States. Uh, they can survive without international trade. Uh, they, they were the world's heaviest trading nation back in the 80s. And since then, it's gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as they move more and more in their industrial plant abroad. So they are actually the second least involved economy in the world now. Uh, and if they can solve the oil question, uh, that's the biggest point of vulnerability that they have. So all of a sudden, with the Americans backing away and China on the rocks, Japan looks out, and the entire East Asian rim is actually asking for Japanese involvement. They're about to be where they were at the first day of World War II, but everyone's inviting them to do it. So it's like, you want to talk about the start of a golden age. There it is. Go long on Japan? Go long on Japan. I won't trust their property rights, but whatever. <laughs> I want to bring us back. This has been a fascinating conversation. And, and bring us back to the person who's listening to the show on, at Big Speak. Mm -hmm. And they're thinking, well, I need this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I need this guy. And there's so much that you can talk about. I'm curious about your process. If, you know, I'm, I'm like, I want to bring Peter in. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to do this. How much do you kind of customize or try to understand a given business? Or are you going to say, okay, I know they're in plastics or they're manufacturing. I, I know exactly what talk they need. They may not even know they need this talk. What's your process? <laughs> well, there's certain components that are going to be in any presentation because I have to make sure that the audience understands how the world got to where it is, at least from their point of view. And so that involves a, a quick fly through uh, a history of the relationship between security and trade, uh, the demographic picture, the energy picture, and you can squeeze that or extend that out from anywhere from five to 30 minutes based on the crowd and the interest because uh, there's components within each of those that might be relevant. But every presentation is customized to the client's needs. And my big sectors are finance and agriculture and transport, industrial commodities, manufacturing and energy. Uh, which is a pretty broad That's suite. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then but again, what's left? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but then I also do a lot with East Asia and Western Europe and Latin America. So, you know, we will we'll mix and match the features sector by sector versus region by region based on their interests and my read of where they're going to be. So usually what happens is I have a conversation with clients on the front end where we talk about their business and their hopes and their fears. Uh, and then we talk about which sectors and which regions and what time frames they're interested in. Because, you know, if you're, if you're doing long-term planning, you're thinking 10 years plus, you know, you're talking about after the world's fallen apart. You know, what, what does your business need to look like? Maybe you're interested in the transition period itself. Maybe you want to get the last big gulp of everything before it all goes down. And we just focus on the next couple of years. Uh, but we'll, we'll drive into topics and time frames entirely based on the needs of the client. I'm not sure whether to be freaked out or buoyed, um, but it's like I want to take that 
the last big gulp in the next three years. I'm like, oh, geez, I can need a bucket. Uh, Peter, thank you so much. That's a pleasure. I, I would love to see your reading list. <laughs> like, I'd love to see your books. I have a sense you're, you have a voracious appetite for information. You have to to stay current. Oh, yes. Right? And uh, I, I remember someone uh, told me that 30% of my job was reading and staying on top. Uh, and I'm thinking that yours is like 80%. Yeah, it's a lot. Right? It's <laughs> a lot. Peter, thanks for, so much for joining us on the show. You have a great day. We at Big Speak appreciate you listening to one of our many episodes. We hope you've enjoyed this exclusive and unique access behind the scenes of the keynote speaking world. Highlights from this episode are available on our website, bigspeak.com, along with the option to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. To learn more about this episode's guest or invite them to your special event, contact us at bigspeak.com.